0: up in Ruth 3 where we left off you know sometimes because as you know we're committed we're going to try to get through the whole Bible dang it if it takes us if it takes us 11 years it takes 11 years we're doing every single word sometimes that's a tedium like when we get to the genealogies and it's like I'm just going to make a sacrifice of time to get through this for you and just give that to the Lord and surprisingly you're still blessed but man in the book of Ruth we're in for a treat tonight this is just amazing stuff Amazing image. So we get to see a picture of the heart of our God. And when you read through Ruth, I'm becoming convinced the entire book of Ruth is to just show us God's heart towards his people. And we see that image coming through. Uh, where we're at when we get to chapter three is we're at the end of the barley and the wheat season. Um, the barley and the wheat season is when Ruth and Naomi, as people with no land, could go and glean crops from the, the, har- the people doing the harvest. But now that the harvest is done, where are they going to get their food from? So they're in a spot, and, and they're in a, in a tough spot. Ruth has been enthusiastically or with zeal hanging out with God's people, gleaning those crops. And then she brings that zeal back to Naomi um, and, and shares that with her. Boaz noticed her hard work and her character in the last chapter, and he not only allowed her to glean, but he actually secretly showed her grace that we got to understand, Ruth may or may not know that Boaz gave those commands to his workers to make sure you drop some grain for Ruth to take care of her and her mom. Um, And he hasn't made a move on her, and he is a goel, but he's not the only person that has a claim on Ruth's life. There's another goel that has a claim on her too, and this is kind of where we pick up. So Ruth has just come home, she's got all this blessing and food, and then um, uh, the crop, the season ends, and now Naomi is going to take a little larger role in the story. Verse 1, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our relative? That word there is goel, Um, in fact, He is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your, the word best isn't in the Hebrew. I'm not going to read it. Put on your garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall then notice where the place was he lied down. You shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you shall do. This sounds sultry at the first glance. It, this is not sultry. This is ancient world stuff. A lot of this implies, we should know what this means as we read it. Uh, verse five, and she said to her, I will do, uh, all that you say to me, I will do. I'm going to do it the way you say to do it. And Ruth just goes out to do it. So Naomi has plans for her, her daughter-in-law. And, the, and, and, and after these three to four months of harvest, Um, we see that they've been living side by side. Boaz knows the character of Ruth, but Ruth has also learned the character of Boaz. So young unmarried people, knowing people in a non-romantic setting is actually an okay way to get to know people's character. Because if you're not on a date with them, they're not trying to impress you. You get just see how they interact with people. And that can be a really powerful way to get to know each other's character. Up to this point, there's no romance going on, though. That starts in this chapter. Uh, She says, shall I not seek security? The word there in the Hebrew is rest. Shouldn't I seek rest for you? Uh, in, In chapter one, verse nine, it's the same phrase she used when she was saying, why don't you go back to your Moabite family and you can find rest with them. What it means is find a good home to have rest in. The idea of a good Jewish home was one where there was peace. And peace in the home is getting to be a more and more elusive thing in our culture. But for the Jews, that was what was... That was what was hoped for, is that a person could have a home where there was peace. You could go home and feel that, um, that rest, literally, the word is to, to be able to relax. Um, so in this context, she's talking about uh, not fire, firearm security or insurance security. The security she's talking about is, shouldn't I think about your well-being as having a husband and a family that you can go to? In other words, Naomi's not thinking about herself as much anymore. Right, it says, is he not our relative? The word goel means kinsman, redeemer. It's a technical term in the, in the Jewish law. It's one who has responsibility for widows in Jewish culture. So somebody who's not being in a household and they're not in a family. And these households were huge, multi-family unit households. But if a woman was detached from one of those, there had to be a goel that redeemed her. And this was important um, because that person would then help that widow have a child. This was for childless. So Naomi didn't need a goel because she had children. But for the, the wives that didn't have children yet, there's a problem in the Jewish culture because then that family line would die. There's no chance for Messiah to come through that family line if there's no goel. So a kinsman redeemer would be someone in the family, usually the nearest brother, would take that wife on and that, they would become husband and wife. According to the original law, it's the nearest unmarried brother, I should say that. This wasn't a polygamy thing. And then that Goel would then take her in. They would have children. And the brother that died, that land inheritance would go to that child. Does that make sense? So that was a way to keep that family line alive because the entire hope for the Jewish people was that there's a promised Messiah that's coming. So um, I don't want to miss the typology of Israel, and I haven't hit it too hard in the first two chapters But it helps us understand this chapter. Naomi, as an image of Israel, starts the story going away full, but she comes back empty. A lot like the Israelites go away to Babylon with the law, with the promises of God. They're full, but they squander it, and they come back empty, right? And Ruth, the Gentile, becomes this image of the Gentile world. She goes out empty, but she starts gleaning from the Lord of the Harvest, and hanging out with God's people, and suddenly she's getting filled up, and she's bringing home literally the bread of life to Naomi. And so the Gentile world gets the Lord of the harvest in their life, and they start getting blessed, and they come home, and we see the spirit of Naomi, Israel, starting to get revived. Um, So Naomi then has hope, she has a plan, and she actually has the knowledge of God's people and God's law and how to live. So when she goes to Ruth right now at the beginning of the chapter, she's kind of telling Ruth, here's how we do things in Israel, right? You don't just go throw yourself at a guy and wear skimpy clothing. That's not how to win him over. Like we're going to do this whole thing here and there's process to happen here. So like with the Gentiles, we read the Old Testament because we want to know the law because we weren't raised in it, right? So we want to understand God's law so that we can share in that abundance of spirit that's coming through the Holy Spirit. So Naomi is instrumental in bringing together the Gentile and the Lord of the Harvest. You see in the typology here. Okay, so the plan of how to meet the Lord of the Harvest has to happen now. The harvest is over. It's not insignificant that this is on the threshing floor. Matthew chapter three verse twelve. Uh, John the Baptist is says his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist isn't talking about physical harvests anymore. The story of Ruth so influences the Jewish people, this idea of the harvest becomes a typology even as they're understanding Messiah showing up. So it's not insignificant that what you do on a threshing floor, it's a big hunk of concrete. There's archaeologists have found these all over the Middle East. You take the the grain when it's dried out, so it has to be after the harvest, and you take a winnowing fork, which is like a big spread fan thing, you pick up all the grain and you literally throw it in the air. It's an allergy person's nightmare. And then the wind, you do it on a windy day because the wind catches the little outside kernel, like when you eat popcorn, the stuff that gets stuck in your teeth. The wind catches that stuff, blows it away, and what lands on the ground is the good stuff. Um, and then, you know, that stuff that gets blown away, John the Baptist is saying that'll get caught in the unquenchable fire, which is adding a spiritual element to it. Um, so this is what the winnowing fork is, is what he's doing on the threshing floor. He's working hard. That's not easy work to do. So when he goes to bed, he's not looking to, to hang out with young women. Um, but this is where the Lord of the harvest identifies his bride, not insignificant. Like this is where I think Jesus identifies the church based on what gets blown away by the wind and what stays on the threshing floor and where it's supposed to be. It's a, it's a giant 2,000-year threshing floor activity that's going on. So that separating the, the wheat from the chaff are, it goes into the parables Jesus talked about. Um, you reap, you bundle and dry it, you thresh it, you beat it, <laughs> and then you winnow it, which is to separate the good stuff from the bad, and then you grind it in flour and it literally becomes bread. Um, So that's what's going on here. So the Gentile then, Ruth, is showing up saying, I want you to redeem me. In the middle of this process, she's going to come and say, I'd like you to claim me. Literally in the Hebrew, she's asking her kinsman redeemer to redeem her. And so we get to that. So the fruit of Ruth's labor is giving Naomi lots of hope. And now Naomi gives her a little advice. Here's how you do this. And here's the advice, three parts, verse three. Wash, anoint, Put on your your garment. So to be clean and to smell good is not a bad thing for people that want to, you know, find a spouse. This is, you can look at it that way in the very practical way. The best thing is actually not there. Largely speaking, Ruth would have work clothes that she would generally go over to the fields in, but she'd also have clothes that she could wear to synagogue or Sabbath, her Sunday best, right? But these are poor people gleaning from the fields. We're not talking about fanciness. Ruth didn't have fanciness. They didn't have the money for fanciness. At best, she's got some Goodwill clothes that she's wearing. But the point is, you're not going to wear your work clothes when you go over there. You're going to dress appropriately. So she gets all gussied up. Uh, Oddly enough, um, she's supposed to wait until he's finished eating and drinking. So don't bother him during the barbecue. Like, at some point, like, Naomi knows something about how to do this. But, you know, we also have to understand that, like, Ruth Ruth is likely in her 30s or 40s. Again, like I, for me, I have to eliminate that image. She's been married for 10 years, right? So she's not a young... She knows how to woo a guy if she wants to. This isn't about wooing a guy. This is about getting someone to redeem you. Um, and, and, and it's about the timing of how to do it. So putting on that garment looks a lot like Revelation 19.8. And to her, the bride, the church, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The imagery goes all the way through the Bible of doing this. Just putting on your clothes, being there. Go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. This is not a sexual maneuver, right? And it's important for us to understand what's going on here. It sounds somewhat romantic, but it's really not. When you're in the fields, they would have long garments that would go all the way down to the ankles, not touch the ground because they're out in the fields. So if he's using a winnowing fork all day, the only thing on his body that's really exposed when you wear sandals are your feet and your legs. So they're that part of your body that would be you know, most exposed to the elements. They probably crack and get hurt. And Boaz is an older guy, likely in his 70s. So his feet would be in pain. Uh, so when you expose an old person's feet as they're trying to sleep, that's not a romantic gesture. That's, that's freezing and you're making someone cold, and it will wake them up. And trust me, being, getting to be an older guy, I'm starting to realize that. The idea of going and setting yourself at someone's feet in the ancient world was something that servants would do. It's a sign of being a fully submitted servant, because if your master woke up in the night and needed something, the slave or the servant would sleep at their feet so they were ready to respond instantly. And that's the whole point of laying at someone's feet. Uh, If you wanted to make more of an advancing, like a Delilah-like gesture, she would lay next to him just like we do today. But laying at their feet was was a powerful image of being a servant of someone. So to wake up with cold feet, you'd say, where did my blanket go? And suddenly he would be surprised to see there's actually a servant at his feet saying, here's your blanket, and giving it back to him. So it is definitely something where she's going to go in and kind of make the situation so that she can show her willingness to be a servant. John 12, they make supper. And after supper, after Jesus gets done eating the supper and he's chilling out, Mary comes in, uh, John chapter 12, verse 3, and she takes a pound of costly oil, spikenard, and anoints the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. Clean yourself, anoint yourself, put on your linens or your clo- your good clothes, right? And again, this has this image that we see with Jesus. It's not a sexual thing. It's not a romantic thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's an act of just being someone's servant and submitting yourself to him. So we see that that image is coming up here with Boaz and Ruth, um, and it's it's really an image of just total submission to the Lord of the Harvest and appreciation. Two, three months of bringing food home, you know, also an image of just thank you. Thank you for letting me glean the fields, letting me hang out with your people. He will tell you what we should do. If you're coming at this with a snarky attitude, that again sounds like a really weird thing. But the idea is if you're a servant to somebody, then you begin to take their commands. And it's not out of obligation or rule or law. You know, we see that over and over and over again. It's not about the works and the rules. It's about the heart of somebody willing to serve and doing that in a, in a, in a disposition of submission, not being forced into submission. So we see this image of um, submission and romance. Song of Solomon's full of it. But this idea that when we marry each other, we submit to one another. Uh, again, it's not something where we force each other into submission. And that's how the world thinks of submission. The kingdom thinks of it very different. We love so much that we're willing to give our life for other people. And it's a model of giving our life for our Lord and King or the Lord of the harvest. So it's a very serious thing that she's doing. She's counting the cost. It's not being done lightly. She takes Naomi's wisdom. Ruth's wisdom is to take the advice of Naomi and do it the way that the image of Israel says to do it. If you want to come to the Lord's feet, do it the way the law says to do it. Come at it with a sacrifice of praise. Last point, sleeping at the threshing floor. Again, the research on this was really fun this week. The threshing floor, remember back in Judges, the problem was the Midianites would come down and steal all their crops? So it totally connects with Judges in that the Lord of the harvest, not just the servants, but the guys that are there are there to protect the crops, they would literally lay on top of their crops to try to protect them so they'd have food to eat. So when the Midianites come through to fight, they're there and they're ready to go. Does that make sense? So there's just the idea that he's, again, Boaz is, <laughs> I want to get into this. We get an image of Boaz as a man of valor. It's how he was defined back in chapter two. The fact that he's laying on his crops and not just sending his servants to do it, he's taking care of the harvest. That's really powerful a lot of rich people just hand that kind of work off sleeping on barley and wheat is not a fun place to sleep Uh, so the fact that he's doing it and that we see that the 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 thievery again in first samuel 23 they're still getting robbed so this act this behavior of the jewish people to sleep on their crops had become kind of a culture because of all the thievery so boaz guards and protects in it he doesn't leave the dangerous work to other people he does it himself I think that's like acting like a man of valor. And as he's defined as a man of valor, uh, a goel, a kinsman redeemer, I, I think we can think of it as a knight of the realm. Just this idea for guys, like if there's protection to be done, we do it. If there's things that need defending, we defend those things. And we're willing to put our life on the line for the people that we've chosen to serve. So th- In the same way that Ruth is going to put herself in submission to Boaz, 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 by sleeping on those crops, he's submitting to the people that are under his responsibility. And he's putting his life on the line for them. I just think that's wonderful. Compare this to Gideon, who was hiding out in the wine vats. Not Boaz, man. He's sleeping out on the threshing floor, right out in the open. So there's this kind of image of doing that. So, um... The Goel, the kinsman redeemer, important concept to get. Um, they had some responsibilities under the law, and I just want to quickly go through those. So if you got notes, this is where I spam a ton of Bible verses at you. Kinsman redeemer, Leviticus 25 48, was supposed to buy anybody in their family out of slavery that had fallen into slavery. You could sell yourself into slavery in the ancient world. If there was a, a murder in Numbers 35, 19, the Goel was supposed to avenge that murder. Like, that didn't go unanswered. Um, if land was lost from the family that it had been given as an inheritance, in Leviticus 25-25, Goel, kinsman, redeemer, their job was to buy that land back. So anything that had to be right with the family, the Goel had to take care of. Last but not least, De- De- Deuteronomy 25, verses 5-10, through 10, fully explains the responsibility of the Goel is to protect the childless widow. That if a woman hasn't had kids yet, it's their job to take that person into their family. So those with strength under God's law are supposed to use it for the good of the people. Compare that to people with strength today and what they use it for. In the world, you can use strength for yourself, but in God's kingdom, we use the strength and power we have to protect the people we love. And that's a goel, that's a knight. That's somebody who's given their life to be one of valor or honor. So I started looking up knight codes in the ninth century. Like, how, where did that come from? Like, because you got the Roman Empire and they fall apart. And what emerges from the ashes of Rome is what the world calls the Dark Ages. It's not the Dark Ages. It's the rise of art and music and schools and universities. And all these Christians are doing things all across Europe in the Dark Ages. And one of the things they do, because there's lawlessness after Rome falls, is they start to decide, nah, in our part of the world, we're going to strap a sword to our hip, and if bandits come, we're going to stop them. Because in the Roman Empire, when the, when the law of Rome disappeared, the world became criminal and lawless. And the Goel said, not in our part of the world, not in our town. And if anything, we're going to give our lives before we watch women and children get abused. We're going to give our lives before the weak are trampled on. So they came up with codes that are entirely looking like Boaz. And I just love this. This is the influence of the word of God on the history of the world. So it's not just a detour down geek lane. My wife accuses me sometimes. In the ninth century, uh, this is the code of chivalry. The first one we know of was in 1098 A.D., 1,000 years after Christ. Here's the code. To fear God and maintain his church. Number one, they put him in priority order. To serve your liege lord with valor and faith. To protect the weak and the defenseless. To give succor to the widows and orphans. In other words, they're goel. This is the night code, looks like the goel code. To refrain from the wanton giving of offense. Don't run around offending people. To live by honor and for glory. To despise pecuniary rewards. We don't do this for money. To fight for the welfare of all. To obey those placed in authority. To guard the honor of fellow knights. To eschew unfairness, meanness, and deceit. We don't watch meanness and let it go. A knight, a goel, no bullies when we're around. The bullies must go. And they deal with them. To keep the faith, number 12. At all times speak the truth. To preserve to the end in any enterprise begun. Finish what you start. This is just like how to be a man. To respect the honor of women. To never refuse a challenge from an equal and never turn your back upon a foe. Like that's the original code of knighthood. And I'm like, wow, this is really rooted in Christian traditions, this idea that we take care of the people around us. Duke of Burgundy in the 14th century summarized this to single words. Faith, charity, justice, sagacity, prudence, temperance, resolution, truth, liberality, diligence, hope, and valor. Same code. So the code of knights, the code of the Goel, goes from the ninth that goes for almost 500 years. That's the rule of of Europe. And in that period, the church rises throughout all of Europe. When men are men, the communities thrive. And when they look like the Bible says to look, it's it's a significant thing. It's not a small thing when men rise up and do the code and do the goel, protect the people around them and guard them with their lives. So I would argue the fall of Rome wasn't dark at all. It was the fall of a ghastly barbaric empire that slaughtered people in the Colosseum because they thought it was fun. And what came out of it was that, the code of the night, the code of the Christian. So all across Europe, there's this, winning of the moral code. Modern historians want to besmirch the knighthood because of attacks on Jerusalem and the Middle East and the Crusades, which anything good that believers start, it only takes 500 years for the enemy to corrupt it and turn it into something nasty. So they'll look at the end of that period of knighthood and say, see, look at how bad this was. But no, for 500 years, they stopped crime. They protected citizens. They protected honor. And they held up faith and love of God. So you... When you look at history, you have to look at the whole picture. Enough of my geek tour, we'll finish the chapter. So, she, but by the way, that's where I, I thought we were going to get through two chapters tonight. But I'm like, no, this, i got to share this knighthood stuff. So I hope that was worth it, especially for the guys in the room. Uh, girls, there's stuff in here for you too. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. She actually is listening to her mother-in-law, even though she's already been married. She's got game. She knows how to do this, if that's what it's all about. But taking that instruction from that image of the, of, of the word of God, the Israelites, <clears throat> not a bad thing. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the grain heap. This is where I got that he's laying on the grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled. And he turned himself and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? Like, this is like every unmarried guy's dream, right? Uh, We'll unpack this. To to eat and to drink, there's nothing in the Hebrew that indicates he's getting drunk. There's some people who are like, oh, that's what's happening there. She got him when he was loaded. No, because when you're loaded, you don't wake up at midnight when your feet get cold. That's the problem with alcohol, right? So the harvest had been ripened. Uh, They had been getting stolen. He's lying on the grain for security. He's not gonna get drunk before he does that. The point is he's eaten and had something to drink before he went to bed, right? She came softly. She's like a ninja, right? She's soft and quiet. The point of coming softly is to not wake the guy up. She's just doing what Naomi told her to do, right? And she's probably not interested in a 70-year-old that way, right? So she comes after dinner. She waits a bit. It happens at midnight, which means he probably slept from bedtime to midnight and nothing happened. She's just at his feet. He wakes up, he can't see who it is because they don't have streetlights, right? It's pitch black, and he doesn't know who's laying there, and there's probably other guys from the harvest laying on the crops with Boaz, right? So the word there, startled, means to tremble or shiver. Uh, He woke, the man was shivering. Literally, he's exposed to the cold. His feet are cold. And again, this is only, I'm embarrassed, but as an old guy, this happens to me. Stuff will roll and pull the blankets off and I'll wake up a half an hour later just freezing. And that's the word that's being used here. The man was startled or the man was shivering is the word that's in there. He got exposed. So he's waking up and then he realizes there's a woman at his feet and he's going, oh my goodness, um, she's not on his feet, she's at his feet. Uh, So there's this very precious, sweet image of I'm here to serve kind of thing. Uh, And then he has to ask, who who are you? So clearly he wants to know who the heck's laying at his feet, which implies that Boaz didn't make a habit of having his servant sleep at his feet, right? Which says another thing about a man of valor. He's not abusing the people that live under his roof and he's not taking advantage of them that way. So she answers, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing for you're a close relative, close goel. This is a really, (laughs) she doesn't like, There's no quibbling about this relationship. She drops it, and and she does it in ways that a Jewish... She literally says, you're my Goel. I'm here to get married, right? So no romance. Like, we want romance, but you can try to think that way all you want. The language doesn't lend itself to that. She's simply coming and saying, I'm here to get married. Like, I'm your servant. I am Ruth, your maidservant. Her identity's changed. Remember through the rest of the book, she's been called Ruth the Moabitess? Under Boaz's roof, her identity has changed. And this is this is a beautiful image of Christ. And I'm not a Gentile anymore. I'm a child of God. I'm your servant. And her definition of herself is, has simply shifted from Moabitess, Gentile, to servant, child of God. Um, in chapter 2, verse 13, the word maidservant in the English in the Hebrew is sifa, which means A female servant of the servants. It's the lowest form of servant. Remember that from chapter two last week? This isn't that word. It's crazy. It's translated maidservant. It's not that word at all. It's ama in the Hebrew. Very different word. And ama is an eligible bride. And she uses the word twice. So I am Ruth, your eligible bride. Take your eligible bride under your wing for you're a goel. Like this is super direct. Like this is not like being subtle at all. So Ruth is proposing, you're single, I'm single, let's get married. It's really simple. Under your wing is, is, could be seen as this sweet image of care, shelter, and protection. It really is. The word wing there in the Hebrew means skirt. It's a part of someone's clothing. It's not like a metaphor for a bird wing, though it's the same word as bird wing. But in this context... Uh, the Jewish people would have these big long robes and they'd have flaps at the bottom. And the idea is if you wanted to marry someone, you'd take that flap and put it over your bride. So she's coming under your protection. They still use this image in traditional Jewish weddings. They'll take a part of their clothing and do it. This is the same word that when David cut the wing off of Saul's garment in 1 Samuel 24, 5, it's the same word. So he chopped off that piece of his garment to show that he had been close. So... And also in Deuteronomy 22, 12, I wish Heather was here. The, this, this wing, this skirt is where the tassels would get attached. So, cause she likes tassels. That's Heather. So same wing that she's talking about. So she's basically saying, I'm an eligible bride. You're an eligible husband. I want you to take me under your wing, marry me because you're my goel. You're the person who has the legal obligation and duty to take a childless bride under your wing, Right. And this is amazing because she's worked with him for a long time. So this, she's finally coming forward. <clears throat> so the Goel thing, it's a direct request for marriage. In this sense, she's coming to Boaz, I think, with a, a poor in spirit attitude. She doesn't have any more access to food. There's a very practical relationship that's going on here. Uh, so this idea of throwing a garment over her would be to get make sure she could continue to f- eat, and so could Naomi. So God uses this image to show his covenant with his care and his people, and I like these references because in the story of Ruth, we're seeing a very story-like narrative. It's not me that says this is a typology. It gets used as a typology throughout the Bible. Ezekiel 16, 16, 8. When I passed by, when God passed by you again and looked on you, indeed your time was the time of love, so I spread my Wing my cloak over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. God uses the image of marriage to relate to his covenant with Israel and his covenant with the people of the world. That he has this idea that there is a bride of Christ in the church. And it's an image that God's given us and it gets used. So, in the words of God, (laughs) Ruth, you're not alone, you're not abandoned. Instead, you're loved, and God says you're mine. And that ownership isn't an ugly, weird thing like the world paints it to be. It's a beautiful thing to be God's and to be God's children. So Boaz being a knight of the realm is not going to force himself on Ruth. And this is, again, with the typology, it's important. God doesn't force himself on us at all. He waits for us to come to his feet and want the relationship. And he's a gentleman. He's not going to force people to go to heaven with him right? And the door is wide open. The gift is there. The kinsman redeemer has an obligation. The whole law is set up to come into his kingdom. It's a downhill slide into his kingdom, but people fight against that because they don't want to be there. But God's a gentleman. He doesn't put people on puppet strings and he doesn't force them into the kingdom. And I just think that's a beautiful idea. But God does receive that love and submission out of respect. And when that happens, God gets to work, which is what's going to happen. The initial reaction of this submission is just exuberance. Well, praise the Lord. So step one, he blesses her for this choice. Then he says, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you've shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, don't fear. I'll do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town, they know you're a virtuous woman. You're a knightess of the realm. You also have virtue. You're also a decent human being. He says, My daughter. He's still using a phrase that in the Hebrew would be a a term of affection for a younger woman, not a sexual relationship thing, but a family kind of thing. Um, Again, he's probably around 70. And based on what we know of Ruth, she's probably around 30. So, like, there's a huge age difference here. It's not a likely pairing. And he's not coming into it that kind of way. But he's going to, he, in the same way, the church and God, that's not an equal pairing, right? We're not on the same terms with God at all. Uh, the Very big difference. He says your kindness at the end, it's at the beginning. He, I, I think he's referring to her devotion to Naomi at the beginning of the story and her kindness and loyalty to Naomi. But now she's bringing that kindness and loyalty to him. And he's, he's understanding like, wow, what you're doing now is better even than the kindness that you showed to Naomi. Because she's being kind to him. She's not going after the younger men. She probably could. But she's going after him who's unmarried. And in the Jewish world, that's not a good thing. Like, you got married if you could. So the fact that he's going to have a wife is probably exciting. Boaz might even be a widower. I don't know if it says uh, why he's single at this point. But he's impressed that she'd even want to come into a relationship with him. And he welcomes that request. He says, don't fear same thing we've heard throughout the Bible when God talks to his people. So first he blesses her. Step two, he assures that she will be saved. She gets assurance of salvation. Step three, he promises to redeem her, but it's not happening right now, right? He's got to go take care of some things before he can claim her as his bride. So I'll do for you all that you request. Boaz is good with this. He restrains himself, but there's some legal issues that's got to be handled. Then step four, uh, he, he gives her a new name. And I don't know if you picked up on that. Um, he calls herself, she calls herself a maidservant, a ma. He calls her a Hayil, which means a strong person of quality or valiant. So that word that he gives her, he doesn't accept the name she gives to him. He gives her a brand new name. And in the same way the Lord does the same thing with us. And we all have new names. I don't know if you knew that. Um, but when we get to heaven, we're going to find out what our new names are. So when we come into the kingdom, God's given us new names. And that's exactly... One of the initial reactions of Boaz here with Ruth. So at least in this community, she's been around long enough for people to know her character and who she are. And he literally calls her a champion of Israel. That she's someone in their community that they're all proud of. Everyone knows you're valiant. Everyone knows you're one of our heroes. And for her to come to him, he just humbles himself like a husband and says, I want you to be in in relationship with me. So, eh. One of these things you thought as you're going through Moes and you're thinking of the age difference here, just so you know, age difference hasn't really been a big thing, at least for most of human history. My grandpa and grandma were 10 years apart from each other. It's only been recently that we've started to age segregate just within narrower year blocks. But that idea of marriage for practicality across human history has never been a big deal. Um, and it's not a big deal here either. Um, and, you know, to be honest, the longer you know people, The people of good character, the longer you know them, the more just handsome they look. And people of bad character, they might initially be really handsome, but the longer you know them, you're thinking, oh, they're not, what did I see in them when I first met them? Um, But I think that's something where these people have known each other long enough, and they've started to understand that virtue and valor are much more important than good looks. Notice he doesn't say, oh, you're such a beautiful woman. He says, you're a, a woman of virtue. I like that. So now we get romance. Verse 12, now it's true that I'm a close relative. I am a goel. However, there is a goel, a relative closer than I. So clearly Boaz has looked into this, right? He knows. Stay this night and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. You're going to be cared for. That's what's important to Boaz. Again, it's, it, it's a different kind of romance than we know today. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. As, as the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So Boaz makes an oath. That's a big deal under the law. He makes a promise. Uh, he swears by the Lord. As the Lord lives, lie down till morning. Um, the idea that there's a family member closer in line, there was kind of a pecking order for the goel. I won't get into all of it. Um, <clears throat> But that idea that there's a closer kinsman stands as a New Testament typology for the law. There's a law that has a claim on you, and I have to fulfill the law before I redeem you. And Jesus does the same thing. Stay this night. There's a period of time between the promise of the Lord of the harvest and when he comes to pick up his bride. And that happens in the New Testament to be a 2,000-year period of time where you're going to wait through the night until the morning comes. Um, the, the idea of stay this night, again, he's not saying come stay this night with me. He uses the word loon, which basically means to sleep, have a nap. <laughs> like, nothing's happening tonight. Why? Because Boaz is a man of integrity and she's a woman of virtue. That's not what this thing's about. So good, let him do it. That's hard in the 12th century to imagine how arrangement this all was. Um, but the point here. Wasn't to run off and kiss under the rose arbor and have music going and birds flying. The point was to make sure that Naomi and Ruth don't starve to death. That really, we really have to put ourselves in that mindset. Who's going to take care of the person's needs more so than anything? As the Lord lives, He makes a vow. He will perform. Uh, God, we see here Boaz's outward godliness is due to an inward choice. He doesn't cut corners. Like, he's going to do it by the law. And that actually builds my respect for Boaz versus the other way around. So in not cutting corners, he does it the right way. The world will take this kind of submission to the law on Boaz's part and submission to Boaz on Ruth's part. And the world would look at that and just call it weakness, right? That there, why would you trust in stuff like that? Where, where's the, the loving, the adoring that should happen in these situations? But what the world calls weak, God calls leadership. (laughs) And God calls outstanding. So it's not an oppressive situation when Ruth submits to Boaz or Boaz submits to the law. That's not oppression, it's honor. And it's doing things under self-control and with our minds and using our head. So that idea of having some integrity and caring for somebody and caring for their needs, it's a good deal. Bible paints this kind of picture. The world has a claim on Ruth. Boaz is about to go get that claim back. And this is the, it's the story of the Messiah, right? It's this beautiful image. When it's done right, Boaz becomes not just the Lord of the harvest, but the Lord of Ruth's life. And, and she not only is, goes from destitute, she goes to being cared for for the rest of her life. And her grandma's coming with her, right? So he's, it's a two-woman deal. Lie down until morning, this nice human touch that gets added. It's late, it's midnight, he's a guy that wants to go to sleep. But he's not going to sleep at this point, he's got work to do. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before anyone could recognize her, which means before daylight. Uh, And then she said, she arose before one could recognize another. And then she said, do not let it be known that the women came to the threshing floor, also, he said, bring the shawl that's on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six, six of barley. The word ethos is just not there in the original Hebrew. She, he measured six of barley and laid it on her. And then she went into the city. So don't let it be known. Why is Boaz saying keep this stuff under your, the hood a little bit? It's because he's going to play a game on this other guy that's got a claim. So there's certain elements of Boaz's plan that aren't going to be revealed. And he's asking the church, or he's asking Ruth, don't reveal it quite yet, right? When Jesus comes, he actually tells the church to be a city on the hill, be salt and light, preach the gospel to all nations. He changes the game a little bit there, but he's still keeping, I think the other claim on our lives is the claim that Satan has under sin. And Satan simply doesn't see what God's doing on the cross. It's not revealed. And frankly, he gets duped. It's kind of the epic story of the universe. Like he doesn't realize that Jesus dying on the cross, becoming our sacrifice, he became our kinsman redeemer. We join his family and not the family of sin. We become part of a new inheritance. And that Boaz kind of does it in that kind of same way. The idea of six ephaphs of barley there, some call this an error in the Bible. Uh, It's not an error in the Bible unless you think it's an error when somebody adds a word. But we can still get texts that don't have the word, therefore it's not an error. It's simply an addition people have put in there. It makes, it's a little easier to read when you say six ephahs of flour, but it's sloppy thinking. Six ephahs of flour would be like 33 gallons. That she, it's impossible to carry that much. So it doesn't make any sense. It's not an error in the Bible. It's an added word that somebody's put in since the original manuscripts. Um, the number, though, is there. Uh, in the Hebrew, it is six barleys, six ses seora, uh, so, but the kind of measure isn't there. Some people have even read this, and there's different. It, it maybe it's ephahs that she took home in a wagon, is one interpretation. Maybe it's six cups of flour, so she'd have something to eat until he took care of his plan. Like he's going to give her sustenance until he returns, like Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit till he returns. Or some people, one tradition is that it's actually six barley seeds. So not even like that kind of thing, but the promise of something else. So he gives her the seeds that she can take home to Naomi, so that Naomi knows what it is. Why the number six? That's the number of humanity. Wouldn't six be even more complete and divine if it was completed with the number seven? So six is humanity, seven is is that, and until Boaz returns, that's an unfulfilled promise, or at least the image of an unfulfilled promise. So in New Testament typology, again, I'm just hitting this a little bit more this time, there's a blessing of bread uh, Bread being the word of god he 's going to give the Word of God to Ruth so she knows the promises are true, so she can go home and tell Naomi that a promise has been made to her to join the family. Naomi may not believe this, but she does, but it 's no surprise for the the town folks when she comes back with grain, be it a cup or six or even bucket loads and wagon loads, because she 's been doing this for three to four months so There's nothing being signaled to the town that Boaz and Ruth have made a deal at all, right? The only thing that would give evidence to that deal is what Ruth has to say to people, so she becomes the one that would share that promise with other people. So, the the idea that he laid it on her in the Hebrew is sheath. It means to place or apply or set a thing on someone. If you take that translation, the idea of the Holy Spirit coming upon the people at Pentecost is almost a very similar image. It came upon them just like he, sheathed sets or places upon her these seeds. It's kind of just, you just, it's impossible across hundreds of years for two different authors reporting history to have this much perfect when it comes to the image of this. Honestly, folks that say there's problems with the Bible, it blows me away. This is absolutely precise in the imagery it gives of the kingdom and what it looks like. And you don't have to sit and read into it or do, you know, Confucius-like twistings of the words. It's just right there right? She comes to the Redeemer and asks to be to redeem, and he promises her, I will redeem you, but I'm going to come back for you, but let me give you some evidence so that you know that the promise is true until I return. I got to go deep dupe the enemy here quick, the nameless guy who's got a claim on you that doesn't matter. I'm going to go, we'll do that next chapter, but he's going to go fix that problem, and then he's going to claim his bride and swoop her up. It's just beautiful. Then, verse 16, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? So remember, she got up before people could see. They didn't have lights that they could flick on because Edison hadn't shown up yet. So it's still dark. It's early in the morning. And Ruth, is that you? Is this the walk of shame that she's coming back with? Does Naomi have other people walking into her house at this time in the morning? Um, Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, these six, this, again, the word ephaz isn't there. These six of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, don't go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Which, I like the image of the seeds because, like, it's in a hand, right? So she gave her the, the, the six barley, showed them to her. Naomi then gets the message because she, being Jewish, knows exactly what that means. It means Boaz just made a promise, like, we're saved. It's all good. Remember, Naomi went out full and came back empty. Now Ruth went out empty and comes back full and brings that back to Naomi. Um, Here's the writer of Romans chapter 11, verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fail? He's talking about the Jewish people. Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for this world and their failure is riches then for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be? For I speak to you, Gentiles, in so much as I'm a, an apostle to the Gentiles and magnify my ministry, if by any means I can provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh to save some of them, for their being, listen to this, cast away is the reconciling of the world What their acceptance, but light, what, what for their acceptance except life from the dead. What for Naomi's acceptance of of Ruth's truth is that she now has hope and has life when she was empty and she called herself Mara, bitter. Remember that? So now she's come back and what a joy. What an amazing thing when the Jewish people come to recognize their Messiah. How beautiful that's going to be. How wonderful that's going to be. So we're just like Ruth. We're coming back to the Jews saying what a joy we have. Look at what we've got. Look at what's in our hand. Um, The bread of life. And there's this promise that he's going to keep, Uh, literally gave her bread. She goes back and shares that with Naomi Um, and it gets handed off to that generation. So Naomi isn't going to get left out of the blessing. This is called replacement theology, right? That the church replaces Israel. That's nonsense. There's nothing in the Bible that backs that up. It's a theology of people that didn't understand what was going on when there was no Israel of the nation in existence on the planet. So in the 1940s and 30s and 20s, that kind of theology started to pop out that the church somehow must have, well, there's no Israel, so there must be something that replaced them so all these prophecies would get fulfilled. But then in 1948, a nation just appeared out of nothing, and there was Israel sitting there again. So replacement theology has been on the decline, um, and that's why. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to the nature of a cultivated olive tree, how much more were these, the Jewish people, who are natural branches be grafted back into their own tree? The whole point of Israel is that they come back to their Messiah in the end. And that's part of the whole narrative that in the book of Ruth, God's laid it out as an image way before the history started to unfold. It's a beautiful history. Verse 18, we'll wrap it up. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he's concluded the matter this day. Ruth has got her claim. And and the idea of sitting still, my daughter, is yasab, And we've hit this word before in the Bible. It means to abide. Abide in the promise. Trust him. He's not going to fall through on this promise. How can Naomi say that? And you're thinking typologies. How can Israel say that? Because they've seen that the Lord of the harvest keeps his promises again and again and again and again. He doesn't quit. And Israel's seen that more than anybody. They've watched those promises unfold over hundreds of years and generations, and yet they get kept. Only a nation like Israel can say to the Gentile world, don't worry, if God made a promise, he's going to keep that promise. There's nothing that stops that from happening. Trust us, we've tried. Like, like, look at the book of Judges. We've tried to screw up God's plan and it doesn't, God's still gonna move, move his plan through history. Psalm 91.1, he who dwells or abides in a secret place of the most high, and that's where Ruth is. She's in a secret place that the Lord of the harvest has asked her to be in. Shall abide under the shadow of the almighty and I will say to the Lord, he is my refuge, my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. It was a season of trust for Ruth. She's got to trust it's going to happen. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. The idea of abiding in God's word, that's kind of what we do on a Sunday night. And I love that we got a big family to do that with. And I appreciate that all the family shows up and we can study the word together. What an awesome thing. Uh, Luke, uh, John 15, 4 abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear the fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me if you don't rest in God and you don't abide in his word literally the bread you're not going to be sustained until the promise is fulfilled so you got to be there at what it says Ruth has to then take him at his word and she has to abide in it to further take the advice of what she sees through Naomi sit still Imagine the day when this plays out, and we're going to get to chapter 4, and this whole scene is going to play out. And there is a moment when Boaz is hooking the enemy, the other Goel, and probably a terrifying moment where they think it's all over. Oh my goodness, he just offered our lives over to this other Goel, and the other Goel just said, yeah, I'll take her. We're getting ahead into chapter 4, but this is just preview. And there had to be this moment of terror as Naomi and Ruth, they're abiding in the promise and then they go to the court at the gates and Boaz is having this big public thing. They're probably in the crowd just waiting to see this happen and then they watch Boaz literally relinquish his claim to the other Goel. And it had to be like that moment of just devastation at the cross. Like, oh my goodness, this is not going the way we planned. And then of course the the other Goel, you know, misses a few details and we'll get to that next week awesome story and i think we're going a little short tonight yeah sorry about that i know y'all come for a good hour 15 lissa sorry getting ripped off Um, but if i tried to go to the next chapter oh my goodness it's another 45 minutes and then y'all start falling asleep so we'll cover it next week let's pray dear lord and king we love you we love your word and lord we don't open up the word of god the bible we don't open it up lightly Lord. we want to hear what you have to say And Lord, when you give us these, you don't just speak to us in the law and in the prophecies. Lord, you also give us narratives and stories and we're supposed to hear them and they're good for our teaching and our reproof and our exhortation and they're good to gather hope. So Lord, we want to take the advice of Naomi and abide in your word and hear it. Lord, we don't want any of the glory, any of the attention that the world may have. We just want to point it towards you. Uh, Lord, we want to be excited about the fact that the bridegroom's coming back for his bride. We just, that image that gets carried through the Bible and how it gets established in the book of Ruth, uh, what a beautiful image, Lord. We just can't believe that you would want us as the Lord of the harvest, Lord, that that we could be in your kingdom and you would take us under your wing, under the shelter and refuge that you provide. But what a holy God you are, what a loving God you are, that in grace and in mercy you'd overlook our poverty, you would overlook our, um, being Gentiles and being of the world, uh, Lord, that you'd draw us in, bring us into your people. You'd let us glean from <laughs> your people on how to live and how to, how to work and how to just be faithful. Uh, and Lord, you'd also take us in and be our redeemer, our kinsman redeemer. So Lord, we, we want to lay at your feet. We want to ask you for that, Lord. We got nothing to offer you, but we just come before you and, and Lord, we just offer ourselves to you. Can we serve you in any way we can? And we're just waiting for you to tell us what to do and how to act. In Jesus' name, amen.